Welcome back to the Stardust Lounge. This is Literary Guys. I am Dr. Gordon McCallan, and with me as always is... Hey there, I'm Zachary Kellyan, author, noted drinker, podcast listener, and now a podcast creator. So, I think you and I were having a conversation, um, I'm going to say last week, and Crystal, who is the bar back here at the Stardust Lounge, we were having a conversation about some of the books that our parents really enjoyed. Not necessarily us, not the things that we've been asked to read, but the things that Mm -hmm. our parents really liked. And this was one of the books that came up in that discussion. It was, yeah. You know, um, Crystal, I think think in title is the bar back here, but we, we have gotten to know her very well over our time uh, drinking and discussing books in this very booth right here. And uh, uh, she's become uh, something of a mentor for both of us. She's got a lot of sage wisdom, has contributed a lot of insight into both this podcast and other unerrable podcasts that we have created together. And so... uh, And and, and as of last week, she's COVID-free. That is true. That is true. Congratulations, Crystal. Uh, COVID uh, was the name of her Eastern European fiancé. And... um, it just had to go, so we were we were glad to see him uh, see his way out. And, and uh, Crystal's on the market now, guys. So look her up. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, the way which we like to operate is that we hope that you've had a chance to read these books. If you haven't, it's not going to be unlistenable. It might be a little unfamiliar, but we really do want to approach this from the standpoint of a book club, a book club with old friends who you are going to get a viewpoint which is perhaps a little bit different than you might hear because we're very interested in not just what happens in the book and what makes these books literary classics in many ways, but also the role of masculinity in these books and what that can teach us and what we should hopefully forget about in terms of moving forward. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of my friends, I don't know, Gordon, if this is true for your friends, were like, you're going to do a podcast about masculinity in 2020? And uh, I don't think we're, we're going for the Joe Rogan crowd here. Um, we're going for a lot of the friends that I talk to across the country, friends who identify as men, friends who like reading and learning about men, um, that they, they don't have a book club for them. They don't have something where we can read masculine quote-unquote literature and and talk about how that makes us feel as men as straight men as gay men as white men as black men as trans men it's um it's really a refreshing um chance to get to talk about masculinity and we're not going to get everything right we're not the experts on this but uh we're sure going to try and we, we thank everybody who's listening for their grace and willingness to go along this journey with us Sometimes you look honor right in the face, in the face of another man. It's terrifying. And so begins The Bridges at Toko Ri by James Michener, a story he calls a story of individual heroism, which, as I think I'll talk about later, I don't think is the case at all. Uh, And so I don't know why he he says that. Uh, But I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion here. If I recall, when we talked about maybe tackling this book for the podcast, you had a little bit of reticence. You didn't have a lot of interest in reading a war book, per se. 
I think you remember that exactly the case. I don't like war novels. I think they dwell so much on the minutia of the war experience, which isn't something that I find personally fascinating. It's a lot of other things I do find fascinating. It's just not one of them. This book uh, is not your typical war novel at all. In fact, it's pretty much about everything but the war. It's definitely not about individual heroism, like you said. It's, it's about what men do for each other. And I really can't wait to talk about it. I think there's so much good stuff here. Absolutely. So um, I, guess, I guess it might help, you know, as we kind of dive into this, to talk a, just briefly about James A. Michener a, as an author. This is actually just his second novel. Um, and his first novel, Tales of the South Pacific, won the Pulitzer Prize. So this man was coming into his second sophomore uh, outing with quite a pedigree. And um, I think in every way, shape, and form, this is equal to uh, Tales in the South Pacific, if not in some ways more direct and I think more to the point of what we try to talk about on this podcast. And how do they compare as far as length? Like that was one of the things that just jumped right out at me about this book. It's so short. It is succinct. It is, I mean, technically three chapters, right? If I'm not mistaken. Um, That is correct. And yeah, I mean, you can, you, this is one of those books and those of you who have already read this book who are listening can, can attest, you can easily read it in one sitting if you're dedicated to it, probably comfortably two sittings. I mean, I read it uncomfortably in three sittings, so. Well, that's how you read. Indeed. And I think there's something to be said for a book that is this powerful, that kind of has this sort of leverage in just a few hours of reading. Um... Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, our chosen drink, the uh, the Murky Lagoon. We chose uh, uh, ass, I guess, for a tiki cocktail. Um, those of you who are drinkers and know a little bit about the history of drinking will know we have tiki cocktails in the United States because of World War II and the Korean War. Our men and women were over there serving um, in, um, you know, Polynesia, in Asia, in um, the Pacific Theater, and we're bringing back things like guava things like uh, sweeter liqueurs and um, this was a chance in in the time of peace in the mid 1950s and onwards for America to kind of embrace this tropical vacation that so many of its sailors and soldiers were coming back praising when they're off hours from not battling the evil communist reds so it just felt appropriate when we're talking about a book from the Korean War to, to kind of have a tiki drink and celebrate that little nod to America's war history that is still a very big part of our drinking culture today and it's not something which is necessarily realistic it's an idealized form of those cocktails yeah. of that experience and and I think what's fascinating when you look at the second chapter of this book the chapter land that it isn't a realistic depiction either of the culture of these places, no. particularly Japan. It is the Liberty Port version of these, which has been Americanized to make them palatable to an American audience. And isn't it fascinating that the cocktails that we have from Polynesia are indeed Americanized versions matched to meet the, the palates of, of those who live mostly in the United States? After a couple murky lagoons like we're drinking here, maybe a three dots and a dash, maybe a jet pilot, maybe just a traditional Mai Tai. I'm going to start off by talking about the interaction between Harry Brubaker and 
George Tarrant, or as he's referred to by those who may be his friends as the tyrant. How would you characterize the relationship between those two men? Um, I think, you know, narratively, we are kind of given a almost father-son dynamic between the two of them. But I feel like it's, it's far deeper than that in terms of how the characters actually flesh, flesh themselves out. I think from the Admiral's standpoint, Brubaker is kind of a son to him or a... Um, I guess, a cipher for the two sons that he's lost in the war already. Or maybe he lost them in World War II. I can't remember exactly. So they were lost separately. And what's interesting, and I think I'm remembering this correctly, is that the first time it's mentioned in the novel, he only speaks about the one son. We don't learn about the death of the second son until later on in the book. And so I think that's where the admirals, the tyrant, so to speak, is coming from. I think, um, I, I wouldn't say Brubaker even maybe recognizes that he's kind of that chosen stand-in for the Admiral's son. I don't think he views himself as separate or special from any of the other men, which is probably what the Admiral appreciates most about him. So we have this scene. It's actually the second scene in the book uh, where they're interacting with each other following the events of the first scene, which is essentially a helicopter rescue. And that helicopter rescue is executed by Mike Forney and Nestor... Gamage, I believe the name is. Two amazing characters, by the way. So who would you want to have drinks with? Well, you got to have drinks with Mike. I mean, you can't... Uh, Beer Barrel, who's a character we'll be discussing shortly, I am sure. I don't think anybody can go toe-to-toe with Beer Barrel in terms of drinks. But I think Mike, uh, until he starts taking on half of Tokyo with his fists, I think he'd be a great hang for a drink. And that is an actual quote from the book, if I'm not, uh, yes. if I'm not mistaken. The language is so colorful and yet succinct. It's not purple prose. It's not at all. It's, it, it, it's just very tight and yet very descriptive. It's easy to read this and start questioning, especially from these opening chapters that you're discussing. This man won the Pulitzer Prize, but when you see the depth to of the human experience, the depth of male identity that he gets to in such a short time, you start to begin to understand the true talent of Michener. There is a tremendous amount of detail about the helicopter rescue that that comes across in just a few pages. And it's interwoven with what I found to be a very compelling narrative about the Admiral and his ability to navigate the fleet through difficult waters, difficult tides. And all of a sudden, the story just kind of melds in about a helicopter rescue, about a man who you don't realize initially is such a close connection to him. Again, this... Uh, this proxy son that he has. And I really just like the narrative. Like, I didn't even know what the story was going to be. It just kind of happened. Yeah, you don't, you don't get a sense for there being an actual main protagonist. I know in the Hollywood adaptation of this, um, William Holden, I believe, played Boo Breaker, and um, they definitely made him the main focus. But we begin with uh, an entire scene of the Admiral and what makes him great at his job and perhaps what's held him back in his career. We really get a very rich character study of the type of man that it would take to command a fleet like this, to get you know, the, um, the ships inland just close enough without you know, hitting the landmines that they're expecting in Korea, without getting past this point of no return. But then you also learn that this man, this incredibly talented man, is viewed by a lot of those in the Navy as a, as a disappointment, as kind of a, a rebel rouser and someone who's best kept in a 
kind of rescue support mission like this. Because it sounded like he, he was on a fast track for a much bigger command than he ultimately had. Right, and, and the Admiral can't keep his mouth shut, right? He can't, um, similar to Brubaker, so it's possible he sees some of Brubaker in himself. When he sees a wrong, he's going to speak out about it. He doesn't play politics, which I think um, back in, when this book was written was probably not a commonly accepted feature of the military that you had to play politics to be successful. I think we know that now through all the war films, for all the maybe wars that we felt might have been unjust or, you know, weren't as incredibly patriotic and clear cut as World War II and maybe even the Korean War were. It didn't feel like it was necessarily about any particular war. Uh, And the Admiral himself, he talks about the need to, to fight wars and to almost transcend the the individual reasons for that war. Yeah, you know, he he touches a little bit on, which if you know your Korean War history, we weren't really fighting the North Koreans. We were fighting the Russians. We were fighting the Chinese, both in terms of their technology and their troops. But that was not something that the top brass was comfortable sharing. And so the admiral, as a very just and moral man, felt the need to speak up about that. And that's why he's kind of resigned to coordinating this support fleet, which we're led to believe isn't the most glamorous position he could be having in the specific theater. But one which is very impactful to specific men. He's the right man for the job and the right man to lead these men, as we learn. Speaking of the right man to do a job, let's talk about Beer Barrel. Let's talk about my man, Beer Barrel. First of all, I don't think we ever get his name. I don't think so either. Is his Christian name Beer Barrel? And is he of the Connecticut Barrels? I thought he was of the Hampton Barrels. You might be right. Yeah, they're very distinct families, and it's important to have that distinction in the novel, I'm sure. So... Here's a character who I do not relate to at all. Like, he is very much not me. He is this, like, very burly fella. He he doesn't seem to be the smartest of men. He doesn't seem to be really all that committed at the end of the day. But he has a singular focus. And the singular focus is landing planes onto the deck of the aircraft carrier, in which he does with an almost religious if you want to say Absolutely. overtone to to how he is um the savior if, if if there is a christ figure in this novel it's actually beer barrel which is shocking every pilot we get to know either actively or references praying to beer barrel this man waving them in with these colored paddles on a deck that is pitching up and down in the undulating sea being buffeted by winds at 60 70 miles an hour crossways diagonally it's one of the toughest things to do if you read up on it to land a jet plane on a open stripped aircraft carrier um still tough to this day still one of the toughest things to do in the u.s military even with all the technology we have and this was just one man at the end of the day waving in these pilots and they had the ultimate faith in him but like you said he's got a very singular focus everything outside of this he's a brute i mean this man is bringing in golf bags packed with so much booze the ordinary man can't even physically lift them And he's doing so against regulations. He's doing so with the full knowledge of the Admiral, who lets this happen because Beer Barrel, this character, is under the assumption, correct or not, that he needs at least a couple cans of beer in his belly to kind of act as a gyroscope to help him help these pilots navigate in on the open ocean. 
Whether any of that is true or not, or it's just part of the religious mythos of this figure, I don't know. But he is a fascinating character who we only get a few brief glimpses of, but for me, he's one of the more impactful characters in the novel. Well, I think if we jump ahead a little bit here to the second of three chapters of the book, and, and we see Beer Barrel taken out of the element of being on the deck, we, we see a man who, who is very troubled, is not a couple cans of beer in his belly kind of guy. He's, he's passed out alcoholic uh, at the bar. Well, there's two sides of Beer Barrel that if, if we can uh, just pour ourselves another drink and, and, and dive into some of the pros of this novel, I'd like to share, if I may. Let's go for it. So we, we've just learned at this point and very early in the novel that the Admiral um, knows that Beer Barrel is far from the ideal soldier. In fact, he might be the worst example, or sailor, excuse me, the worst example of a sailor you, one could have on a ship. But he appreciates that singular focus. And there's this great line that to me kind of echoes um, Rutger Hauer's uh death lines at the end of Blade Runner in terms of the amazing sights that he's seen over his time uh, throughout the universe. This is from uh, page 7, chapter C-S-E-A. From his own bridge, Admiral Tarrant watched the jets come home. In his life, he had seen many fine and stirring things. His wife at the altar, Japanese battleships going down, ducks rising from Virginia marshes and his sons in uniform, but nothing he knew surpassed the sight of Beer Barrel bringing home the jets at dusk. That is, a, that is an admiral who is far and away a better military man, um, at least the way he can articulate himself, a better man, someone who we could all relate to, a better leader than Beer Barrel, but in that moment, of this man, one man's singular focus, no man surpasses him. And even a great man like the Admiral can recognize that. Compare that with what you just mentioned when we see Bear Barrel out of his element. This is in the uh, second chapter, uh, Land. And uh, they are in uh, Japan at a kind of officer's retreat, this luxurious hotel, and they're all boozing up. The Admiral, we learn, doesn't drink, so he's just there drinking coffee. He meets Brubaker's wife, who has surprised him in Japan. She's got some diplomatic connections. She was able to swing that. And we're seeing through her eyes some of these men in a new light. And um, she's kind of getting agitated um, by this entire experience of these drunken men and them prioritizing missions she doesn't understand and and having a bond between one another that you know she might feel is sacrosanct to husband and wife in some ways so her, her name is nancy and we pick up with but nancy was too agitated to see her daughters just then she pointed to the end of the bar where beer barrel lay at last sprawled upon his arms his face pressed against the polished wood will he fly against the bridges at tokori too she asked when the Admiral turned away to survey the mammoth Texan, his lean, main face broke into a relaxed smile. That one, he said reflectively, he flies against his bridges every day. One of the things I've known, you and I have been friends for a long time, and, you know, you say that you don't relate to a man like Beer Barrel, but even though we don't know what those... those uh, bridges or quote unquote, you know, demons might be that he is battling with. Does that insight into his character give you a little more appreciation for the man? Does it make him a little more relatable or is he still someone who is just so far outside your, 
your personal social suck structure, the types of people that you regularly interact with? Or does it give him some kind of sympathy from you? I think there may be a little bit of sympathy, but I, I personally deal best with individuals who can articulate what, uh, what they're going through. And that, that may be very different from what I'm experiencing or, or my story. But that's usually the bridge, the bridge, if you will, yeah. since we're talking yeah. about bridges at Toko Reap. That's the bridge that allows me to connect with someone. It's the mm-hmm. story. It's mm-hmm. the dialogue. And Beer Barrel doesn't have that. And we've talked a lot about this. You know, you and I have very different ideas of what masculinity is. Uh, one is not more valid than the other. And I think you articulated your idea. Your, your idea of a, of a traditionally masculine um, protagonist might be Nick Charles from The Thin Man. Agreed. Um, who is a very articulate, very well-read, well-spoken, a gentleman, if you will. Beer Barrel is certainly not a gentleman. He would fall into a much more coarse, but perhaps much more ubiquitous idea of what male masculinity is in that he is a man who does his job. And whatever personal demons he might have, whatever emotional strife he might be dealing with or perhaps should be dealing with in a healthier way, he's not doing that because he's focused on his one and only job. And I think that there's a beauty in that. I think there's a reason to celebrate that. It's certainly led to toxic masculinity throughout the ages. It's something that in 2020, when we're recording this podcast, we're addressing as men and as a society. But I think, you know, back in 1954 or whenever the specific incident in the Korean War took place, um, this was a very typical man who probably would not have risen to the greatness of this Christ-like figure in any other scenario but war. And to me, that's a very powerful remark on what makes masculinity a powerful force and what makes it something to be talked about and nurtured and embraced just as much as we embrace femininity, just as much as we embrace humanity. I, I totally agree with that. And, and there's a lot of avenues of discussion we could take from there. But what, what it got me thinking about was another literary character who was being penned right around this time, which was Ian Fleming's James Bond. Sure. Who also, if you go back and read those original books, was far more brutish than than the James Bond that we, we anticipate Today, when we go see a film, regardless of who is portraying Bond, Fleming describes him as a blunt instrument. Love that phrase. Love that phrase. And yet, as a blunt instrument, he is able to be articulate. He is able to to seduce. And he's also knowledgeable. He's able to, you know, even in the books, he's able to come up with a fine drink or a champagne or like his knowledge is much deeper than a blunt instrument should have that's why when i look at someone like beer beer barrel that i don't see that i don't see that depth of character that allows me to connect with him it could he be a wonderful person absolutely i just am probably never going to find that out i guess here's the question then for for us for those who are listening to the podcast as we navigate this world of masculinity and literature is James Michener trying to tell us that a man of the depth that you describe in terms of Fleming's Bond or a man like Nick Charles from Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man series, would someone with that level of depth, that level of complexity, that level of emotional resonance be able to do what Beer Barrel does? Or can he only 
do what he does because he is so simple. He is so blunt and he is so direct and he can have that singular laser focus that no one else in the entire Navy can compare with. And I think you're on to a great point, which we're going to get to in a future episode on this book when we start talking about the catapult room. Oh, yeah. And how people who are of the persuasion, who are not as single-minded as Beer Barrel, are able to cope with them, with everything that's going on around them in a very physical and almost, dare I say, destructive way. And that episode will be uh, either, either next week or the week after, but uh, I, I am looking forward to hearing how each of our home-constructed catapult rooms are going, because as I have learned from this novel, if you don't have a catapult room to face at 3 a.m. Are you even a man? I think we can both agree that the answer is no. I think it's important to note that these this cavalcade of men that we are learning about, this ensemble, if you will, of men, all who exhibit different forms of bravery, all who exhibit different talents, different ideas of dedication to God, country, and each other. Um, it's important to note that James Michener actually based all these men on a very real crew on a similar Essex-class aircraft carrier that he served on during the Korean War. Uh, Michener o- was a war veteran. He had a very choice job on his particular ship. He, uh, he served on the same ship as Neil Armstrong. So we don't know if any of these particular men are based on Neil Armstrong, but he knew him well, and Neil Armstrong was a pilot in the Korean War. Uh, Michener had this great cush gig of just sitting on the ship and writing about these men's experiences, I guess, kind of as a, uh, I'm sure there's a better military word that uh, any of our listeners will know. I'll just call him the dramaturg of the ship. I'm sure that was the official title that he held anyways. But he would just basically there to tell stories. He got this cush job because there was an Admiral Mark Mitzschner spelled completely differently, pronounced differently, who everyone just assumed James Michener was related to. And as he said, he never lied about it, but also never corrected anyone either. So he kept getting all his choice assignments because people thought they were currying favor to an admiral who didn't know he existed. So with that, I think this is a good chance to wrap up this episode. Uh, We've been listening to the music of Edgar Bergamont in the background. Lovely as always, Mr. Bergamont. And we do want to thank, as always, the Stardust Lounge. And with that, signing off, this has been Literary Guys. <laughs>